everybody. Uh, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm the host of this podcast. And today I am very excited for my very first guest for this podcast. Um, I have known Lieutenant General Yvonne Blondin for probably 15 years now, and he has always treated me with the utmost kindness, and he has been professional, forthright, and just an an amazing ambassador for the Royal Canadian Air Force, who he served as a fighter pilot and ultimately as commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force. Um, so I can't think of a better person to have as a first guest. And um, he's gracious enough to spend time with us. I'd like to take a quick moment to thank our fantastic sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Cubic provides C4 ISR capabilities for defense, intelligence, security, and commercial missions, and is a leading provider of live, virtual, constructive, and game-based training solutions for U.S. and allied forces. Cubic is a great company who recognize what we're trying to do here at Go Bold, and in supporting us, they are supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion through a small enterprise like ours. So we thank them for their support. Please check them out at cubic.com. Now back to our show. So Lieutenant General Blondin, uh, absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Jyoti. Uh, as always, it's a, it's a pleasure to join you for discussion. You are you are very kind, sir. Thank you. And so, as I do with with the guests that I plan to have on this show, um, I like to ask, what made you join the military, and uh, how did you pick the branch that you did? <laughs> well, you, you may not believe this, but I, I've never wanted to join the Air Force. Never wanted to be a pilot when I was young, and the um, the day. I actually showed up in a recruiting center. I got up that morning and I was I was actually going for an interview uh, to be a salesman, an insurance salesman. I was going to no college kidding. just outside of Ottawa. Okay. And I, I needed a job. And uh, I I had never thought or or, or entertained the idea of, of joining the military or joining the Air Force. It, it never entered my mind. But I went to uh, to an interview. I saw an ad in the papers. I needed a job. And uh, the, there's an insurance company in Ottawa that needed people, salesmen. And I, I applied. So I took my car, went to downtown Ottawa, parked, and went for an interview in a big building on O'Connor. Uh, came out of uh, the interview an hour later, and I knew they were not going to call me back. I knew as insurance salesman, it was probably not in my jeans. And, and uh, I, I leaned against my car that was parked along the street and uh, tried to figure out what to do because I still needed a job. And I just mm. happened to be parked in front of a recruiting center. And, uh, and, and it had in the windows jobs for students, jobs for young people. So I went in. Okay. I didn't know why I went in. I just went in. And there's a, there's a person in uniform in the counter and I asked them, how does it work at a military? Do you, do you have jobs for students like me? Like I, I, I want to keep on going to school, but, but I need a job on weekends, night. 
And the guy was good. He told me, of course, kid, we've got jobs for people like you. We've got all kinds of jobs. Now, what interests you? What would you like to do? <laughs> and he's asking you a question. I, I didn't know what to answer. I, uh, uh, it's too general a question. But behind yeah. them, there were posters. And, and there was uh, one guy in, uh, in a flying suit leaning against a, a fighter jet. And I said, well, can I do this? <laughs> that looks he cool. Behind, yeah. uh, behind them, smile. And he said, oh, Of course, you can be a pilot. You want to be a <laughs> fighter pilot. Of course, you can be a pilot. He's if a good you've recruiter. got the time, just, just come in and, and, and fill up this paperwork. And we started doing this process. And, and Jyoti, I, I, I got hooked. They hooked me in. I started filling paperwork. They started sending me to, uh, to appointments, to see a doctor, to do this, to do that. And within a few months, I was in Chilliwack starting training. I didn't tell my mother until it was time for me to leave. And she, she wouldn't believe that I was joining the military, that I was joining the Air Force. She didn't know where that came from because I had never talked about this. But here I was, I, I left for the Air Force. And in my That's mind, awesome. it, was, it was an adventure. I left college without finishing college. And, okay. and for me, it was just a temporary thing. Mm -hmm. This is an adventure. I'm going to do this for a few years. And then I'll come back, finish university, and have a real job. Just going to do this for a few years. But of course, uh, they had told me that if I finish training, I owe them five years. Mm -hmm. Well, and at that time, five years didn't seem like a long time. And I thought, actually, if I graduate, <laughs> I'm going to be a military pilot. So doing it for five years, yeah, I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> and right. then I'll do university and the, uh, the real job. Okay. Well, geez, it, you know, so number one, the recruiter did his job well. <laughs> Yes, yes, because because I never went back. Yeah, I, right. I did 35 years. I stayed in the Air Force, never got a real job, but never got <laughs> bored, and I love what I did. Oh, man. Well, you, you know that I'm uh, an absolute advocate of the Air Force, and I love I love military aviation. So I'm totally excited to, to have you as a guest and, and to talk about your career because you flew not only the F-5 Freedom Fighter, but you also flew the F-18. And um, so I'd love to know, you know, you, you were looking at that picture in the recruiting office. And I'd love to know what it was actually like once you, once you kind of went through the process and ended up at an actual airfield and, uh, and saw what you were going to be flying. Uh, well, actually, my first, uh, my first posting, my first real airplane when I finished uh, training was the, the venerable T-33 Silver Star. Oh, yeah. Uh, actually built by Canadair uh, in, in the 50s. Right. Uh, and I was flying that airplane. Uh, I flew it for four years out of uh, Sherwater in Nova Scotia. Uh, and and this is this where I really learned and got experience on flying. Once I got from the uh, away from the T-Bird to join the real fighter fleet, uh, then the next airplane I flew was the, uh, was the F-5. And at that time, going from the T-Bird, for me, the F-5 was, uh, was a big step up. It was a real fighter plane. Sure, yeah. But of course, once, once I learned to fly the F-5 and eventually graduated to, to the F-18, then, uh, then you see the real difference between a modern fighter and, and the F-5, which was a neat airplane to fly, but really uh, didn't have the technology, the systems to, to really do much uh, if, if you had to go into combat. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the F-18 was uh, taking you into a new, a new generation. I was lucky enough to join a brand new 
squadron or at least a squadron that was reopening with the uh, the brand new F-18 when we bought it. And that was, uh, we got the F-18 in 82. And uh, in 86, I joined uh, the 433 squadrons out of Baggettville with a bunch of uh, new F-18s. And we opened up a, uh, uh, a new era out of Baggettville with, uh, with F-18s. And I flew the F-18 for 20 years after that before they pushed me into an office and I started uh, going up in rank and uh, doing other things uh, other than flying. Okay, so I have to ask you, how did you get your call sign? I know what your call sign is. But. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You look at the, at movies uh, like Top Gun, and, and they've got those cool names like Maverick. I, I wish somebody would have given me this this nickname. But I, but I love Canada, your call sign. You don't get a cool call sign. <laughs> Actually, your peers decide which call sign you're going to have, and they right. rarely. Feel you feel you are worth of a call sign like like Maverick. So I got a call sign. Bad. Now, there's always a bad reason why you're getting those call signs. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you, Jyoti. I I don't remember what was behind that one. I don't remember at all. And 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 uh, by the time I got old enough for people to be asking that question. Actually, later on in my career, most of the guys who were around the table that night that decided after a uh, consuming uh, a, a few a few glasses of alcohol, uh, not, they weren't around anymore. They, they had retired. They were in the, uh, in the industry. So nobody could find out where that story uh, came from and what I did to, uh, to deserve that. So it got forgotten. And I've forgotten it too. So I don't remember, Jyoti. You know what? The beautiful thing about that, uh, Bad, is you can make it anything you want now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm just concerned with today's technology that, that somebody out there knows <laughs> the real story. And, and it's going to pipe up. I don't need that. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Well, I'll tell you what. I th I When I heard it for the first time, when I heard that your call sign was bad, I was like, that's badass. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's the way I think of you general. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I, I will, even if there's a different reason for it, I will always kind of think of you in that way, you know, cause yeah, you know, I, I loved, I loved watching you lead. Um, I loved, uh, I, w I was, you know, I, I followed the Canadian air force and many air forces for many years. And, um, when I knew that you were getting, uh, you know, the spot as commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force, I was like, that is awesome. Because I, I couldn't think of a better person to have that. And I'm not saying that because you're the guest here. I am saying that genuinely. Uh, because as I mentioned at the intro, you were always kind, always, and you always gave a bit of your time. And uh, to somebody like me, that that means the world to me. Oh, I appreciate that, Jyoti. Coming coming from somebody like you is a real compliment. Thank you. Oh well, no, uh, the thanks goes to you, General, because you know one of the things that I like to do in this uh, podcast is to also talk about leadership, leadership styles, and um, you know when you come in as a journalist and you speak to somebody that has a higher rank of flag officer um oftentimes they have minders 
uh, kind of looking after them and, and kind of bird dogging for them. But the other thing is, is that, you know, if you come in as a journalist, um, many times people are like, okay, well, I'll give you just a few minutes or, you know, and, and then I'll kind of push you away and carry on with my day or carry on with whatever I got to do. Um, you never did that. You never kind of um, waved waved me off, at least, um, and that told me a lot about you. You know that you actually, I guess, a little bit of it is. I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think that you recognize that as you went up in rank, that part of your job is to be an advocate and to tell the story of the Royal Canadian Air Force in your case. And, um, and I think that's cool. I, I don't know if many, if all leaders think that way. Well, as, uh, as I went up through the ranks, um, I always felt like, uh, like an imposter. Uh, I, I told you that I never really wanted to be in the Air Force. Well, early on when I, when I joined training, all the people around me uh, training to be pilots their story was they wanted to be pilots since they were five, six years old. That's that's their dream. Uh, they, they've been pushing for this. A lot of the people that uh, were officers with me had gone through military college. I never did. Uh, I, I, I felt like an outsider. Mm. And for me, I was just passing through an organization like the RCF mm-hmm. until I was not. There came a time when, uh, when I realized I was going through the ranks that... Uh, Instead of, uh, of, of uh, complaining and bitching about people making decisions, I was becoming one of the person making decisions. <laughs> right. And actually, that Air Force that I was sometime complaining about was me. Right. And I was becoming that Air Force. And, and when you start realizing this, you realize that the decision, what you're doing is actually the Air Force doing it. So why not doing it the way you think it should be done? I was told I was probably halfway through my career. I had 17 years in. Okay. I was in Ottawa as a lieutenant colonel. And uh, I was offered a posting to Bagotville. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I had just separated. Well, there was maybe six months, eight months. I had separated from my wife. And I had a 10-year-old daughter living with me. My daughter was going through this separation with difficulty. She was mad at her mother for leaving. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had issues, uh, both living in the, the Gatineau area and the Air Force wanted to send me back to Bagotville. And I said, no. I told them I could not go. If I go, either I take my daughter with me, it's going to be away from her mother or she stays and she's not getting along with her mother and I'll be away and, and it's not a good time. And mm-hmm. I asked to stay in Ottawa for a couple of years to stabilize my daughter. Okay. And the answer I got at that time was no. Really? It was needed in Bagotville. Okay. And they yeah. told me if I, if I didn't want to go, then I had to quit. Wow. And I did. No I kidding. submitted my release papers. And at that time, you had to give six months, uh, six months notice. So mm-hmm. I signed my papers. Mm-hmm. Within four months, and I was, uh, I was applying, I was getting out. Uh, after four months, the Air Force came back to me and said, Actually, we're moving the, the headquarters from Winnipeg to Ottawa. There are some jobs here in Ottawa that we can't fill. If you stay, 
in the Air Force, we'll guarantee you three years in Ottawa. And at that time, it, it, it was good for me because at 17 years, I was not getting a pension. But if I could stay until 20 years, I could have a pension. Okay. So it was stability for my daughter and going in. Sure. But I knew at, at that point that I had said no to the Air Force. Right. And, and somewhere you get on a blacklist when you do this, when you refuse a posting. And I knew that. So mm -hmm. for me, it was uh, three years and probably I'm going to get out. Eventually, after a year or two of, uh, of staying in Ottawa, I, I think that stabilized family-wise. And, and I went back to the Air Force and I said, uh, okay, thing is stabilized. I, I want to put my, my name back in a hat. I'd like to be commanding officer of a squadron. Uh, you can post me wherever you go or you want. I, I'm, I'm okay. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, it's too late. Uh, and, and I realized at that point that because I was told directly that uh, uh, I was not going to get any higher in rank and, uh, and, and, and not going to be a commanding officer of a squadron. And uh, that was the end of it. And, and it was disappointing to me. Mm -hmm. Somebody intervened. Somebody, somebody that I, I, I admire a lot in Ottawa got involved and said, why are we doing this again? What is the problem with Blondin? Could somebody please tell me why and explain to me why we shouldn't be using him if he wants to stay and he's ready to do all of this? And eventually it, it coincided with a friend of mine who was supposed to be commanding officer, posted to be commanding officer of 425 Squadron in Baggettville, a month before taking command, released from the Air Force to go and work for Air Canada. Oh, okay. And all of a sudden, there's a position, a commanding officer position that opened. Right. And the, uh, that general that helped me in Ottawa said, Blondin would be a good guy to go there. And I did. He awesome. got me in his office and he said, uh, uh, I've got an offer for you. Take your time to think about it, but I need an answer within the hour. You want to go to Baggerville? <laughs> right. And if you do, you need to be there uh, in three weeks because your change of command is going to be in four weeks. And 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 I jumped in on the uh, on the offer and uh, and became uh, became commanding officer of a squadron and and I got I got a chance back at a career mm -hmm. in something that I, I loved, but something happened at that time because the system hurt me. The system when me as a person said I have an issue. I need time to, to deal with my family. I want to be loyal, but I need help. Mm -hmm. That system said no to me. Right. And that marked me for the rest of my career. When I went back to Baggettville as a commanding officer, I didn't like what the system did to me. Yeah. Not just to me, but was doing to families. Sure. To everybody that was moving every two, three years. To every wife, husband that sacrificed things to follow the, uh, the, 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 the member uh, at, at places like Cold Lake, Goose Bay, or Baggettville, mm -hmm. and, and, and don't have a say into what's happening. Mm -hmm. When I became a colonel, I was a base commander in Baggettville, wing commander. It followed me. It was in my gene now, and I had to take care of the families. For me, uh, I, I was looking at things differently, and I didn't care. I didn't care. This was important enough for me to say, even if I, uh, if I thought this would not help me get a, uh, a promotion, that I didn't care anymore. Mm -hmm. I would push for that. Mm -hmm. And somehow, 
I ended up doing this at a time when there were a lot of senior officers that expected that from some of us. And, and even though we were pushing the limits of what was acceptable, they supported us and, and, and things started changing. So I, I was lucky to be able to, uh, to, to be promoted. And sometimes I was surprised to be promoted even though I said some things sometimes that I thought was, was uh, pushing a bit far. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but it, it kind of shaped the rest of my uh, leadership years. You know, it, what's interesting about that is um, sometimes a couple of things. Well, sometimes it takes an advocate to, um, to help you. And in, in your case, it was that general that, that said, why not Blondin, right? And I think that is awesome. And the fact that it happened to you and you, you saw that the Air Force establishment was not really helping you or looking out for your family. Um, I think when it becomes personal, then, then you know, it, it's, it's much easier to kind of lead when, when something has happened to you as opposed to just kind of hearing, you know, having somebody come in and say, hey, I got something going on and you not really being able to empathize. Oh, yeah. Once you start being into those situations, you realize that to be a leader, you need people to lead. You're not leading machines. You're not leading offices. You're not leading budgets. You're leading people. Right. You're motivating people to do their job. You're motivating people to, to go forward. You're motivating people to do what the country expects them to do. In order to do that, you got to take care of them. You got to yes. show them the way. You need to believe in them. You need to be there to support them, to offer them something that they uh, they will want to have. Mm-hmm. And and once you realize that that you're nothing on your own, but if you empower the people that work for you, if you if you pick the right people to be doing the right jobs, man, they're going to be doing miracles for you. If totally. you believe in them, the system is good enough to recruit some outstanding people, and uh, and and they're going to do great things actually I, I I didn't do very much as a colonel my people did them when I when I came to to the division uh, mm-hmm. and and I met you I had some great people working for me and making it work we had lots of challenges we were in Afghanistan we had the Olympics we uh, we got the, uh, the the earthquake in Haiti and everything was was coming at us from left and right but I had outstanding people out there doing doing some great job and once you you realize that your job is just to to point the way tell encourage them uh, take care of them and let them do their job man they things can just went well i love that i love that approach general i think it's uh it's the right way to lead in my humble opinion um you know, uh, no one person can do it all, but if you have a team under you that it feels valued, feels appreciated, and is, you know, not micromanaged, you know, given some autonomy and given enough rope, I think, you know, even to make mistakes, because you learn from mistakes. Uh, hopefully, they're not severe mistakes, but um, uh, I think that's the way that, that you develop a, an amazing team. And of course, uh, years after this, when we're talking and discussing you and me, always seemed better than it was because you tend to remember all the good times. So of sure. course, I, there was probably times when, uh, when I did stuff that uh, people didn't appreciate. Uh, this always happens. 
but it doesn't change the fact that leadership is is taking people forward is accomplishing things uh, with other people and i think uh, this is one lesson that i learned early and and i'm i'm happy that i learned that because i think the air force is always often seen for its airplanes but really its rank is its people absolutely oh for sure yeah the planes can't do anything if you don't have the pilots and the maintainers and the technicians and everybody else supporting um for those that perhaps don't know much about the Royal Canadian Air Force. Um, how would you describe the Air Force uh, in the context of, you know, some, somebody perhaps outside of Canada, or, you know, quite frankly, somebody in Canada who's not familiar with the Air Force? How would you describe it? Well, again, you start with the people. The recruitment system is great. It, it, it goes and takes uh, a bunch of... Uh, of very motivated people that show up at the, uh, the recruiting centers, but it, uh, it filters, it takes the best and then trains them. It gives them specialties and it's, it's great at doing this and then ask them to do job. And, and it's, it's different jobs. It's very different doing search and rescue stuff and uh, doing uh, supporting the army and helicopters or doing uh, cargo carrying out of uh, Trenton and big C-17s or Hercules or flying fighter airplanes uh, all around the world. Uh, all kinds of different world, uh, different jobs, but from the same kind of people that join because they want to do something that is not ordinary. Mm. And, it, and it's maybe what attracted me the most. You get the chance to be going out there to live the adventure, but help. You're gonna be helping people. You're gonna be doing something that you're gonna be proud of. I, I never felt my job as rewarding as when I went to, um, to Haiti during the, the earthquake, mm -hmm. when second day of the, uh, after the earthquake and we're showing up with airplanes and we're, we're piling people inside the airplanes we're helping hurt people, we're helping sick people, we're helping Canadians that are trying to, uh, to, to get out of the country. You're around this chaos and you feel like you are their shining light. You are what, what they, they've been hoping for for the last couple of days. They're putting their lives in your hands and you're the ones who is, who's there to help them. And that is so rewarding that you've got all this training, you've got all this equipment, you're wearing this uniform with that, that maple leaf and you are a shining bacon for them. Right. They're coming to you and you're bringing them home safely. That is a reward. Yeah. That is something that you can't get anywhere else in Canada. And, and that's what I enjoyed the most. And, and, and you've got all this, these guys in the Air Force just going around the world and, and, and maybe it's naive, but feeling... Like, I'm there to help. I want to help. I've got this training. I've got this expertise. I know how to do stuff. And I've got this great equipment. And I'm going to be helping. And you can. And you do. That's what I love the most. And, and you've got thousands of those kids that are fixing the airplanes, sending them to fly, deploying in, in places like, like, like Afghanistan, like, like Haiti, uh, and, and be there to do their job 
And when they do, they, they feel fulfilled. They feel like they're doing something that is more than just working for your paycheck that you're going to get on Thursday. Right. You know, when I, when I started this podcast, I put out a couple of um, initial prologue episodes, if you will, uh, just describing what this podcast is about, who I am. And one of the things that I said is that I have the utmost respect for people that serve. And I genuinely mean that because it's not, um, this is, you know, Canada does not conscript people. You know, we don't have mandatory service. And so therefore the people that choose to serve are the ones that come in and decide that, Hey, I'm going to serve my country. I'm going to serve my nation. And, um, so yeah, you describing those examples and wearing that maple leaf on your shoulder, um, I, I can't help but feel proud myself and, and to, to appreciate um, the pride that you would feel going all around the world and representing Canada in whatever capacity. Yeah, and, and, and for me, that maple flag has never been something political. It's not right. something about, about politics inside Canada. Right. It's more about values. It's about who I am, who I want to be, and, and my people, my family, mm. my group, the ones that share the same values. And this is the way we live. And we see that others feel or live differently, have different values. And sometimes some of them need help and we can help. You're coming in and that, that maple leaf becomes a symbol of who you are, of, of, uh, of what you represent, of the values that you're bringing to the world, to those that, that, that need it. So it's always great when you come back and say, well, this is my country. This is, this is being home. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, so in the context of, of the Royal Canadian Air Force and our um, breadth, our capacity, how would you compare us to other air forces around the world, first world nations? Well, you get the same group of people that can do the job. And, and really, when, once you're part of an air force, and, and it, can be, it can be the Navy or it can be an army, it's, you're part of a group. You know you can do some stuff, but you know your limitations. You know you can't do it all, but you feel complete because you've got all these other people that complement you. And when you put all this together, you've got, you've got organization, you've got structure so that you accomplish things. And you're proud of that. So you, you're part of this organization. You feel this, uh, this thing. I could identify to this because I had this Canadian value, this Canadian identity, and, and it shapes what you are. Mm -hmm. uh, you're probably a bit more naive than some of the countries because, because you're not affected by, uh, or we were not affected by conflicts as much as, let's say, uh, let's take the example of Israelis who have been in conflict for the last 25 years, 30 years. Their identity is shaped based on conflict, based on responding to this conflict and all of this, which we did not have in Canada. So it's a different. When you compare yourself, you're going to see some differences based on, on where they're coming from and based on what, what actually shaped their, uh, their identity. So there, there are some, uh, some similarities that are based on, on structure organization that makes you closer to some other uh, nations or some other organizations. 
mm -hmm. but different at the same time. Right. And so in terms of, I totally take your point because when you mentioned that um, you can't do it all, um, where do you, where do you think the Royal Canadian Air Force fits in the sense of what we can do really well? <laughs> I think I'm, I'm going to take first the, uh, the generic approach okay. without getting into the different capabilities. I think the first thing that we can do really well is actually being able to work without all the, the equipment you, you would want to have without all the people that you would want to have. Uh, it's a small Air Force. It's a small group. It's a small budget. It's got old equipment, but it wants to do so much or it's being, it's expected to be doing so much in such a large country that uh, that group feels that all the time we need to get the maximum out of our seekings that we flew for 50 years out of our tutors that we flew for 60 years plus and still flying, out of our F-18s that we've been flying for 40 years and probably for another 10 years. Uh, we've got older equipment, we've got stuff that we need to take care of because it, it, takes, it takes years to be able to replace it. When you decide or you want to, uh, to replace it, you know it's going to be another 15, 20 years before before you may see something. So so you get into the uh, I need to do a lot with with not much. Right. And I think the Air Force, at least the people are really good at at doing this, at taking care of what you have and uh, making it work because it's not about the equipment, but really they're going to be looking at you for what you can do with it and uh, what you can deliver. And mm -hmm. whether it was with the, with the Seeking, with all the Hercules, with all the Fives, with the Fittings, or with, uh, with our old stuff, people at Canada still expected us to be there when there was a storm and a search rescue helicopter was needed. They still expected us to be, uh, to be on top of the ships when the ships were being sent all over the world. They still expected us to be doing our job when the F-18s were being sent to Yugoslavia or Libya and be uh, shaping as much as we could towards uh, uh, using our values, what the Western world was doing uh, as an action in, uh, in, in that collective effort to, uh, to try to, uh, to bring order where there was none. So uh, yeah, I think generically it's uh, do great with, with not much. Yeah, and, and that's interesting because um, the equipment we have is good. Um, and I, I take your point that it is older and Canada seems to take a long time in procurement. Um, I think many nations do. Uh, I don't know if we're uh, unique in that regard, but, um, but certainly it is, it, <laughs> uh, it must be a challenge to keep things operationally um, capable, particularly when you think about uh, a combat aircraft like a, like a F-18, uh, which right now is going through another modernization process, which I think is, is, is a good idea. Um, you know, you want to keep them combat capable. Yeah, well, absolutely. But again, I bring you back to the way we see things. And, and for me, it's, it's, it's always been about people. It's, uh, 
I don't mind flying the F-18. If it was just flying it around the uh, around Canada, uh, just to show the flag, it uh, hey, I wouldn't mind keeping the F-18 for 20 years. But in in, in the last 20 years, we've sent the F-18s to be uh, to be part of operations that were dangerous in uh, in in uh, Yugoslavia, in uh, in Iraq, uh, in Libya. You got situations today, like uh, what's happening in Russia and uh, and Ukraine, and that's at NATO's door. And we are part of NATO, and we have obligations. I, I hope we're not going to be sending anybody flying the F-18s uh, to be doing uh, doing stuff out there. The F-18 is getting old, and it's not about the airplane. It's it's who's going to be in that airplane. It's somebody's son, it's somebody's daughter, it's uh, somebody's neighbor. Uh, it's our kids that we're going to be sending in those airplanes. Uh, I, 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 I want a replacement for the F-18 because I know that with our obligations at the North and NATO and the situation in the world, what's happening in Russia, what's happening in China, that it doesn't look great for the next 20 years. And there's going to be occasions when people are going to be tempted to use, uh, to use their military like Russia is doing now in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And people are realizing today that there isn't much you can do to stop what's happening in Russia unless you've got airplanes or something to uh, to oppose it. I completely agree. Um, if there's anything that maybe should awaken um, people of all uh, Western nations is what is happening in Ukraine today and what could happen. Um, having a, a robust combat capability obviously is important for, for an Air Force. And you were uh, commander of one Canadian Air Division when, uh, when fighters were in Iraq and, uh, and I believe Libya as well. So I'd love to know what your thoughts were about deploying people into harm's way. Yeah, and I like the way you phrase it. It's deploying people into harm's way. It wasn't about deploying F-18s or CP-140s or helicopters. It was about people. And, and they were at the, uh, the center of our discussions early on, considering the options. Right. The uh, sending people in F-18s, it was what kind of threat they're gonna be, are they gonna be facing? What is the risk? And, and risk, was the basis of our decision, what we were being asked to do and the recommendation, what should we, should we do it or not? And the best example uh, uh, of, of our decision-making process was uh, uh, for us contemplating sending F-18s into this kind of operations and looking at the, uh, the air defense capabilities in Iraq and the kind of risk we were looking at, we thought, okay, it's, uh, it's viable. We can do this pretty safely. CP-140, even though the risk was not big, was not high, we restricted the CP-140 to, uh, on, on a much shorter leash, not to go inside Iraq, uh, to be staying uh, uh, to closer to, to bases, using, using it as a, as a surveillance uh, airplane, but, but from afar. Mm-hmm. Because you still had 15 people inside that airplane. The risk of it being hit by something was low. Mm -hmm. 
But the consequences of losing one would have been horrendous for Canada. So we, we look at the risk and we, uh, we, we manage it by limiting what we were going to be doing with airplanes. And every, every time we did this, the risk was about what needs to be done and what are we going to gain and what can we lose? What's the risk of uh, losing it? What's the probability? And, and everything we did was based on risk assessment uh, all the time, whether it was, was in Iraq or in Yugoslavia or in Libya. So I say this next question with all due respect. Um, do you th believe that Canada is risk adverse mm, or the I, Air I, Force, I should say more specifically? No, I, I wouldn't say this. I wouldn't say risk adverse. In, in all my experience, once uh, we decide to go into an operation or do something, the, uh, the risk assessment was, uh, was done by, by the military, reviewed by, uh, by civilians with us, uh, reviewed by the political side. But uh, I think we were all in agreement with the risk we were taking and what we were willing to take, whether it was coming from the political side, the military side, based on what exactly are we trying to achieve. Okay, well, that, that's there's, there's There's a difference between Canada being invaded and you've got people inside the country, there are people bombing your, uh, your cities, bombing your people, and the risk you're willing to take at that time, which would be very high, because now you're, you're trying to survive, to I'm trying to help somebody else. Right. And even though people are dying somewhere else, it's always based on what can we do? What is the risk being taken? What is the best way to achieve what we're trying to do if we're trying to save uh, save people? And of course, if uh, you're doing with a bunch of other countries within a, a collectivity, mm -hmm. uh, collective action, then it mm -hmm. becomes easier to take risk, or at least to uh, to to lower the uh, the overall risk and be able to achieve what you uh, what you want, what you need. Right. Yeah. For sure. We hope you are enjoying this episode of the Go Bold podcast. Please take a moment to like and subscribe so you don't miss any of our fabulous guests and topics. Now, back to our show. So I'd love to know, you know, we just talked a little bit about Afghanistan um, and having the aircraft there. And, you know, you, you were very much a part of things that were happening in Afghanistan as commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force. Um, what are your thoughts knowing how things ended there? Um, I would love to get that perspective, you know, because I'm yeah. sure it's, it's significant yeah. to you. Well, I'm, I, I feel sad when I think about, uh, about how it ended, I feel sad for the Afghan people. Yeah, I feel, I feel sad for a lot of people out there that wanted to get out of this, this life, wanted to build something better wanted to uh, to improve their lot and uh and weren't able to do it uh, in the end but at the same time it's uh it's not everybody and there are a lot of people out there that uh, we tend to look at the people in afghanistan that uh, uh, have lost something but there are people in afghanistan that are happy that things are coming back to the way it was uh, it's, it's, it's not all black and white. Yeah. And to try to change something in Afghanistan, if, uh, if, if you don't have the people behind it, 
if you don't have the uh, the culture behind it, if you don't have the other countries around it behind it, it's very difficult to try to impose or try to uh, to 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 bring about from afar. Mm-hmm. It almost went back into the regional culture, into the regional way of life. Do you think that that's a little bit of um, uh, perhaps naivety uh, amongst Western nations that went in and perhaps didn't totally appreciate the culture and the regional dynamics? Or because coalition forces were there for over 20 years, which is not a, a short amount of time. Like, So I'm, I'm saddened too at the way things happen. Uh, see, I went there. I, I spent six months there. Mm-hmm. And probably uh, when I went there, I, I went uh, with my naive Canadian eyes, going in there and hoping to change things, hoping that uh, we can bring uh, schooling for little girls, that we could, uh, we could help them build a better life and all of that. And, and, and you get there wearing your Western clothes with your Western money and all of this, not necessarily understanding or not necessarily feeling how everybody around this sees this, I wouldn't call it American, but, but maybe the, the, the Western way of doing things, mm-hmm. trying to be imposed and trying to be, uh, it's almost like a, like a new colonialism arriving. Mm-hmm. And, and there are some, uh, some perceptions that, that are out there with the people in Afghanistan and around Afghanistan and Pakistan and India and, and, and in other countries that look at this and, and don't necessarily like this, don't necessarily appreciate it. The way it's being imposed, the way it's being brought forward without respect for their culture, without respect for their religion, without respect for their history, for their way of doing things. So we, uh, we stumble into this, we try to impose something, we're naive about this, and in the end, we're surprised that it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 a shame. You know, at the end of the day, I, I'm saddened at, at the way things happen. But on the same token, the West can bring um, you know ideals of democracy and equality and all of these things. But um, but they also have to want to embrace it, and they also have to want to live it. Yes, and and you know what, Jyoti, I I want to believe that. Uh, the best that we could do, we've done it. Yeah, we've we've uh, we've pushed the seed of democracy. We've showed some people what it can be, and th- and there are some young people there. There are some some women. There are some men in Afghanistan that want something better and will take the best of what we had to offer, and and build something using their culture, using their assets, using it may take time. But at least maybe we showed them something that they want to have, they want to build without, without leaving right in their face our, our wealth, our richness, our dollars, and, and, and with, we think they should be doing their thing. If we've left and they can, they can stay with just our ideas of democracy, maybe our ideals are going to bring something. That's what I'm hoping. I'm with you 100%, General. I, I hope that as well. And and I am certain that there are those people there. You know, after 20 years, 
you would hope that there are those people there that are embracing some of those things and taking it to heart and hopefully through whatever means they can on their own, trying to make a change for their country. Yeah. That's what I hope. Yeah. So tell me what it's, what was it like when you got told or when you were appointed as commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force? Uh, I would love to know how you felt um, and what being commander was like, because, Mm. you know, as you said, you didn't even have intentions to join the military. Now here you are, you're going to be leading the Air Force. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, when I was a base commander, I was a colonel. There's some things I couldn't do. There's some things that my boss said I couldn't do that I didn't like. And I wanted to, my boss's job because, because then I wanted to be able to change that. Right. <laughs> so when awesome. I got my boss's job, I was commander of division in Winnipeg. I actually got all the base commanders together. On my first day as commander of the division, I told them, okay, things are different now. This is what we're going to be doing. Cool. And I told them, this is this is where we're going. This is what we're doing. Yeah. And in trying to do this, in trying to do some of the things I wanted to do in Winnipeg, there's some stuff I couldn't do because my boss in Ottawa, the commander of the Air Force, would tell me, no, no, well, we're not going to do this. We're not going to go there. Right. And and there's sometimes that I, I thought, oh, man, this is not the way we should be doing this. Mm-hmm. I wish I wish I could be the commander and, and be able to change that. And I wanted his job. I wanted to be there. And actually, uh, in uh, 2008, I was due to be posted. Uh, and and the, uh, the chief of defense came to Winnipeg on a visit. It was General Natinchuk. Oh, yeah. Came to Winnipeg was very happy with what I was doing. And he told me, uh, Ivan, you're due for posting uh, next year. And I actually would like you to pick up another star and become the deputy commander in NORAD. I was going to be promoted Lieutenant General and uh, go to NORAD as uh, deputy commander. Okay. And that that disappointed me. And, and, and I told him right there, I told him, well, sir, I, I really appreciate what you're telling me. I really appreciate your your, your vote of confidence. But really what I want is to, to be commander of the Air Force. Oh, that's awesome. And that's he said, well, Good for well you. I'm not planning to change the commander of the Air Force this year. So, so there's no opening for you. Right. And I told him, well, what about if, uh, if you send me to Ottawa to be deputy commander of the Air Force and next year I, I, I could be commander of the Air Force. Yeah. And he said, well, I, I, I can probably bring you in Ottawa to be deputy commander of the Air Force, but I can't promise you to be commander of the Air Force next year. You'd have to take your chance. Okay. And I told him, well, I'm willing to take my chance. I'd prefer to be deputy commander and remain a two-star general for another year to go to Ottawa and have a chance of being commander of the Air Force than going to uh, cover the Springs. I said, okay. So I didn't go to Colorado Springs and I was posted to... Uh, as deputy commander of the Air Force for a year. And I stayed uh, stayed there for a year. And I was lucky the following year, there's nobody else that showed up that uh, that, that uh, beat me to the job and I was appointed commander of the Air Force. But I awesome. wanted that job. I yeah. wanted to be the boss. I wanted to be the one saying yes or no, saying this is what we're gonna be doing. And But, uh, as much as I wanted it, as much as I, I was happy when I got it because the plan worked, because I got there. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't exactly what I expected the job to be. 
and actually oh. coming to Ottawa and getting into the uh, the political world. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. of NDHQ, the political world of the Canadian bureaucracy, and the political world in general, the real politics. That uh, that surprised me. That was uh, for me. It was a. Uh, I tell you, it was a disappointment. It was something that I felt was uh, not as clean as everything I had worked with before. And uh, I, I find this tough. This is when I realized, okay, well, this is how decisions are made or not made. Mm -hmm. And this is how my people, the, uh, the stuff we do and, and, and the people working for us are, are being pushed left or right or decisions made about them. And I found this uh, very difficult. And actually it wasn't my, uh, even though I was commander of the Air Force and it should have been the pinnacle of my career, it's probably the post thing I hated the most. Wow. For the, wow. Uh, the kind of work that needed to be done. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I didn't enjoy it. That saddens me. And it saddens me because I know the man that you are. And um, I'm glad you were there, no doubt. So and now I have to ask you, how are decisions made? Because that yeah. that's the realization that you came away with that 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 was not what you expected. And so I'm I'm curious. Well, you know me, Jyoti. You've known me, and and into some of those uh, those positions I had. I came I came from Winnipeg as being the the, the commander of the division, and and you make decisions. You look at what's happening, and sometimes you have to make decisions. There, and and you're you're in charge. I got to Ottawa, and I think uh, within the first month, uh, my office was two floors below the minister's office. Okay. Uh, I think there's a, there's an evening I was uh, invited for dinner and I was going to make a speech uh, as commander of the Air Force and it happens often. Mm -hmm. And the day before I was going to go to that dinner, um, my uh, executive assistant got a request from the, the minister's office. And when I say the minister's office, it's not necessarily the minister. Right, right. The office. Minister's right. people. Right. Minister's office asking for a copy of my speech. Mm. So the EA comes in my office and I said, uh, uh, the uh, minister's office would like a copy of your speech you're going to make uh, tomorrow at uh, that dinner. Mm -hmm. and, and that surprised me. First, because I have been in the office for a month. This is the first time I was in a job where there was actually a person that was a speech writer. <laughs> right. Okay. Working for me. Right. And, and uh, I got to the job and uh, I have a speech writer. So somebody is. <laughs> uh, so we should, work for at least two weeks. Since when did I need a speech writer? Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I had never used a speech writer sure. before. Right, You're right. I was used to, uh, I don't write speech, I just do speeches. Right. But right. now I had a speech writer. So for two weeks, I worked with, uh, with that lady. 
uh, about my speech. She wanted to know to know me so that she could uh, try to figure out how I would say things and then what I wanted to say. So she came to see me a week before that dinner because that was going to be the first speech. Right. What do I want to talk about? Okay. And, and we worked on the speech. And she came back a few times. So we had this speech that, uh, okay, in the end, it wasn't necessarily perfect, but I was, I didn't want to send her back a third time to do things. So I just accepted it. And I said, uh, I thought in my mind, I'm, I'm just going to change some of the things. And so that was a, that process. But then I get this request from the minister's office. And when I asked my executive assistant, why do they want to copy my speech? And she told me, well, they want to review what you're going to say just in case you're saying something they don't like. Uh, they're, they're going to tell you, they're going to try to shape what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like that. And no, I thought, nor should you. Yeah. Uh, at, at the rank I am, especially if I'm doing a speech in front of military people, I, I'm not going to a chamber of commerce. I'm not doing something political. I'm right. just, why would they review my speech? Why would they want to review my speech? Yeah. And I felt like uh, this is, for me, I felt like it was a step too far. Mm -hmm. So I actually told my executive, well, not right away, I had to think about it for a few hours, but eventually I called her back. I had ripped my written speech that I really loved. I threw it in the garbage. And I actually told my executive assistant that I don't have a written speech. And I did not. I had ripped it off. Mm -hmm. I told my executive assistant, tell the minister's office that I do not have a written speech, that I do not write speech. I just go off the cuff. Right. So I don't have a speech for tomorrow. And this is one she provided to the minister's office. And eventually they said, well, okay, they didn't come back. But from that point on, I never used the speechwriter again because I didn't want my speeches to be, uh, to be reviewed by somebody else. I yeah. didn't want to be told what I was going to be saying. Either you trust me to say the right things, and if I say the wrong things, well, fire me or uh, find somebody else. But uh, do not try to control me uh, from the start. But this is this is the kind of stuff that I I didn't enjoy. And again, it wasn't from the minister; it was mm -hmm. from the minister's office staff. Mm -hmm. And at that point, uh, you got to remember that it's uh, I, I I got appointed commander in two thousand thirteen. The uh, this is. Uh, the conservatives have been in power for six or seven years by then. Mm -hmm. They're starting to be uh, to uh, to be attacked by uh, on a lot of subject, a lot of issues. They feel vulnerable in front of the uh, the liberals, uh, and and they're more nervous. So they want to control more. They're trying to control the message. They uh, they have been hurt by issues around defense, and they're trying to control everything. They don't necessarily trust. The senior leaders of the uh, of the, the Canadian forces, so they're trying to control them, especially new ones that are coming in that don't know where they're coming from. So uh, I was probably at the period where there was a more control trying to be imposed. Uh, some people in the minister's office being more paranoid about uh, what uh, what can hurt them. So it didn't help the uh, the environment, and and of course. Your role as a, as a commander of an environment is to, to advise the chief of defense, but to advise the department, to advise the minister on what you should be doing or not doing and why and all of this. So a lot of uh, your time is on discussions on what you can do or shouldn't do or, or 
advice. So if trust is not there, or there's some uh, some mistrust about stuff, it it's difficult as a relationship. Yeah. Well, I I'm certain that that you that you were aware that it was a uh, that it would be a political environment. But what I'm taking away from it is, I guess, your disappointment in um, in that lack of trust, really, because if they put you in that position, they you would think that they expect you to know how to conduct yourself and, you know, what are what are what might be, you know, if you're going to be talking to people, you know who your audience is and you tailor your your message to the audience. But um, if they want to if they want to armchair quarterback everything, that's. Yeah, that political environment would be very frustrating, I'm sure. And then there's probably uh, personalities as well. Mm-hmm. Because for me, getting in there, uh, new into the environment, uh, first time I met the chief of staff of uh, Minister McKay, wasn't to say, hello, here I am. I was being called, and I don't remember the issue, but something came out in the paper one morning that uh, was critical of the government and concerned something that happened in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. And the first time I got to uh, to the office, uh, the minister's office with uh, with his chief of staff, was for the chief of staff to yell at me. I didn't know him. I had never met him. And the first words out of his mouth were, were to scream and, uh, and insult. Wow. And, and I felt... At that time, at the level we're at, is that is that the kind of uh, communication that we're we're starting with? Exactly. Uh, yeah. No uh, kidding. But I wasn't impressed. No, I and, wouldn't have been either. And I, and you're expected to just uh, just respond and forget about this. And the next day we meet, uh, we can smile, we can have a we can have a drink uh, because now we're going to be talking about something different. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, I wasn't ready for that the uh, first few weeks. I was surprised by uh, by this environment. I was su- surprised by uh, by this, and I felt like if uh, if emotions are so high when when something small is happening, what are we going to do when there are big decisions to make? Yeah, are you going to be the one around the table trying to make the decisions and control your emotions uh, and all of this? And and uh, well, I. I didn't think we had the, the best environment for decision making at that time. Do you think it's changed, General? Well, from what I've seen, from most politicians, they're doing well. They want to do well, but the people around them, and, and there are many who mm-hmm. are their political staff, mm-hmm. who are trying to protect them. Mm-hmm. Who feel that their job depends on on getting their man reelected, or keeping his office, or not being seen in a bad light? Uh, they sometimes can can be very emotional and and feel like uh, uh, what they are working for and what triggers uh, their emotions is not necessarily the issue itself of what you're trying to solve but the effect it can have on their man mm-hmm. or, or, or woman uh, or whoever their politician is. But, sure. uh, and they end up being the ones you have to deal with in, in trying to make decisions. And uh, uh, it's difficult to understand sometimes 
the, uh, the extent of the issue you're trying to solve, but it's been complicated often about the issue and the, the different ramification of the issue that can alter the political situation or influence uh, the perception of, uh, of the politician or the, the party's position or where it's gonna go. And it, everything becomes complicated at that time on what needs to be done or not. So the discussion is never easy mm. into what needs to be done or not. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So let me ask you this. It, 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 as commander of the Air Force, what would you have wanted to do that you were either unable to do or what were some things that you were directed to do that you like, this doesn't make any sense? Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about acquisitions. Perfect. Yeah, let's. Please join us again for our next episode of Go Bold with our guest, Lieutenant General Yvonne Blondin, former commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner. <laughs>